This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. And hello, everyone, and welcome to the Monday edition of Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111. We come to you today from the Philadelphia Convention Center, the site of the Power of Performance Conference presented by the National Black MBA Association and Prospanica. There are an amazing number of great business stories at this conference from companies both large and small across the United States. So sit back and enjoy Knowledge at Wharton today, coming to you from the Power Performance Conference presented by the National Black MBA Association and Prospanica. The leaders of the organizations hosting this conference joining us right now, Jesse Tyson is CEO and president of the National Black MBA Association. Thomas Savino is uh, president of Prospanica. Gentlemen, thank you for your time and thank you for the invite to come down here today. Well, thank you for taking the interest to be here. Yeah, it's good to see you. Thank thank you. Uh, This is the first year that you're hosting the conference together. Tell us, I guess, from both perspectives, how the partnership came together, Jesse. Well, National Black MBA has been in existence since 1970. Um, we morphed from five college students at the University of Chicago to now having over 12,000 members. We do a conference each year. Um, we have gotten to a point where we have anywhere from eight to 10,000 people at our conference. Prospanica has their own, had their own conference, and we thought it was time for the two powerhouse organizations in this space to come together and demonstrate to our members, our boards, and our country that Latinos and African-American groups can come together and do some good. Uh, And it's all about trying to help the next generation get access to jobs. And so why wouldn't we combine our resources to become a much bigger event than we could be if we were two separate ones? We've been close as organizations for a very long time. In fact, uh, we often just look to National Black for guidance when the National Society of Hispanic MBAs was created in 1988. So we've been close. Our chapters have been partnering for years. And on and off, from what I understand, uh, the organizations have discussed partnering in greater detail. I think I'm not sure what took so long, but uh, I'll say, you know, uh, I was in the job two weeks. Jesse didn't give me a lot of time, and Jesse already had a vision in place. Um, And we went on a journey that was very clear to Jesse and I. Very clear for all the mentions, all the reasons he mentioned. Uh, I'd be interested to get your opinion. I mean, the title of the conference is Power of Performance. What, is that, what does that mean to each of you? Well, for me, what it really means is we have to teach our members as well as those who attend our conferences that, you know, they have to be prepared uh, before they go, A, into the interview, and B, once they land the job, how to get themselves positioned to be successful in their career. So performance trumps everything. Uh, we talk a lot about mentoring, um, but we also tell them you can have as many mentors if you want as you want, but you have to be good at what you do. So performance is the key, uh, and that gives you the power to continue to propel your career. Tom? Yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely right. Uh, all the subjects, if you look through the subjects for the last few years, you don't underline performance, right? And And at the end of the day, you can have a great elevator speech. You could have all these great soft skills, yeah. but if you don't perform – it just doesn't matter. So, and, and the truth is we need, we need our people to go in and perform right. fundamentally almost before anything else. So. But I, I, th- I found it interesting in just walking around here today. I mean, this is obviously an opportunity to hear from a lot of great speakers, but this is an opportunity to be able to meet uh, a lot of companies and, and give opportunities to people that are, that are looking to take that next step in their career, which I think is it's a key component, especially in today's marketplace. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, um, you know, it's hard to get that message across. We, there's a lot of pre-conference events, and we know some kids come in, and we watch them come in through the door when we first open. Some are lost. They've really got to have a plan because there's overwhelming opportunity to meet people, not just on the career floor, right. but at our lunches, our professional development, in the hallway. So they really need to come prepared, but they have great opportunity, absolutely. And but they better plan it. There's over ten thousand people. I didn't catch the last num- latest number yet. Ten thousand and twenty-seven. Wow. Ten thousand people oh, here. God. You're probably not going to get a chance to speak to ten thousand people. Yeah. So you need a plan. 
So obviously the part of the reason why you come here is, well, partly because of the facilities, uh, because, you know, there are certain places that can hold 10,000, not necessarily everyone. And we're proud to have it here in Philadelphia. Well, you know, we were, uh, ProSpanica was here a few years ago for, for when they had their standalone conference. Uh, National Black was scheduled to come a few years ago. We ended up not coming here, but we made a commitment to the Convention Visitors Bureau. If, if you take care of a few things to accommodate some needs that we had, we right. would come back. And I was talking with Julie Coker probably two years ago, and she said, we fixed those things, so thus we're back, and we're back in a much bigger way than we were originally planning to. So then when you talk about leadership today to the people that are here at this conference, what do you think makes a good leader these days? Well, for me, it's courage. It starts with courage, the ability to uh, to make difficult decisions. Uh, I oftentimes say leaders see the same thing that everyone else sees, but they just have the courage to take action. Right. Um, and if you look at some of the decisions that ProSpanica has had to make and that I've had to make for National Black, uh, even in what the decision that the CVB has had to make here in Philadelphia, that's what leaders do. They make the tough decisions, you live with the with the outcomes, and you move on. Tom? Yeah, today's environment, both you know, with the government and how – the country's going with a little divisiveness certainly needs courage first. And we're seeing that with corporate activism, right? Yeah. Uh, the, the CEO is becoming much more than the leader of their organizations. Um, they're becoming leaders in, in the country. And certainly courage, and I think transparency comes with that. Right? They got tough messages, and they have to be very clear. Uh, you can't spin it. You, I guess you can try, but you can't spin it so much anymore. Well, I, I found it interesting when, when we're doing the show uh, daily that when you talk about the role of a leader right now, uh, whether that be the C-suite, whether that be a manager, mid-level, whatever it might be, uh, those are people that maybe have some of the same components and maybe 20 or 30 years ago, but obviously they've been updated because of all the different kind of nuance changes that we've seen in business and especially with technology. I mean, that has just kind of influenced, I think, to a degree how leaders lead these days. Yeah. No, I, I agree. It, technology is the enabler that allows us to get access to a much broader base uh, in a much faster time than we had in, in the past. But I think the, the, the authenticity of leadership is still the same. Uh, we, we have to be courageous. We have to be ethical. Uh, and we have to be able to motivate people to do the things that we can't individually do ourselves. But that ethical piece is an interesting part to it because we still see examples of where ethics are failing. We mentioned uh, on the show a few days ago, Wells Fargo. There's a, an ex instance of not necessarily ethical behavior. We still see it. So how do, you, how do you think you need to eliminate that? What are some of the components you think that need to be eliminated to, take, to make being a leader of a company more ethical? Well, eliminate's a strong word, right? I mean, you can put all, yeah. all the systems and structures in place, and, and human beings are going to be you know, human beings wherever they are, be it in the church or a nonprofit organization – or a corporation was in more temptation, and and the isolation—if you allow yourself to be isolated—certainly um, kind of separates you and, and gives you false description of reality. Um, so it's hard to eliminate. I think um, I'm, I'm proud of what Wells Fargo has been doing to reach out to us. Yeah, right. They've now been very transparent. Uh, they've they've really reached out and done a great job. So uh, we're we're real happy with the direction. Uh, I feel badly for them and their employees and yeah. their families. We've gone through it, but uh, I think they're they're reacting and they're still catching up because you know with some one news after another coming out. Yeah. But um, it's it's hard to, uh, and it's it's a going back to the leadership and courage thing. Not just that one person though. Um, it's mid management a lot of times we find where we need the courage. Um, you can have our CEO leaders be political activists or or have a value system they put out and speak to publicly, but it sometimes it gets stuck in senior to mid management. Right. That's yeah, if I, if I could add to that, you know, companies don't make bad decisions. Individuals make bad decisions. Right. And in some cases, systems are not uh, robust enough for leaders to catch some of those decisions that are being made before they become uh, major issues. Uh, to Thomas's point with, with Wells Fargo, we're kind of walking down that path with them because – to his point, they were fairly transparent with us as one of our partners yeah. uh, in terms of what happened and, and how they have put fixes in place to make sure uh, that it doesn't happen again. But stepping away from Wells to talk about leadership a little bit further, you know, people sometimes will lose their moral compass. 
And when we lose our moral compass, it's hard for us to find our way back to where we should be. Right. Uh, and that's not unique to any individual, but it just requires that we stay di- um, diligent around trying to stay focused and stay grounded. Jesse Tyson is the CEO and president of the National Black NBA Association. Thomas Savino, president of Prospanica. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. Playing off of what you just said, thinking about something that was in the news recently, uh, what's going on with the NCAA right now? And that is kind of, I think, not surprised a lot of people, but it's disappointing to be able to see that leaders of young men in a college setting are taking are making some of the decisions that they are. Yeah, and and same same comment about this whole notion of having a moral compass. Um, but I think part of it too is as a society, uh, we talk more about the guy who can shoot a three pointer than we do the kid who is getting an engineering degree. Right. Um, that's a societal issue, um, and 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 you one can ask ourselves, who's going to have the greatest impact on society over the long term? Right. I'm an athletic fan myself, but I tend to put more of my emphasis around helping that student get through engineering school. Sure. Uh, you know, and hopefully that kid will make enough money where he can buy a ticket to go see the athlete play. Right. But let's focus on the fundamentals that we need to focus on and not allow things to get sensationalized and get trapped into uh, athletics. Because uh, there's so many other things that we could spend our time on. Um, but to your point, though, the, the, the leaders of those young men, uh, and, and, and I think they're all at this point young men, um, have to be accountable. Uh, and when those things happen, tough decisions have to be made, and people shouldn't be apologetic about making those tough decisions. Tom? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, and um, I agree with Jesse. You, you kind of wish everyone could come to a week like this to see our all-stars and our three-pointers yeah. in terms of, you know, their education and their performance at work and watch the way they network. And, and this year, maybe especially with the partnership, very easily these kids are reaching across the aisle quickly with harmony. Uh, so it, it's beautiful to watch. And so these are our stars. We, were, we tend to work with some of these groups, as, you've, as we talked about briefly, behind the scenes in a very business sense. Yeah. And, and when groups like this come to us, we give them business advice how we can help them or work with them or just how someone else can work with them to start heading in the right direction. I wanted to ask you about uh, about millennials in terms of leadership because a lot of people talk about how with millennials it's a little bit of a different mindset. Is it also, uh, are you starting to see that it's a little bit of a different mindset where leadership is concerned as well? Yeah, no, first of all, I mean, more than half my chapters are now led by millennials. And um, it took the organization a little while to get used to speaking millennial, if you will, uh, it, there's some, there are some. Still takes me a little while to, to get used to speaking it as well. Yeah. But, you know, despite all the joking and, and maybe some of the discomfort, uh, they've led in certain ways that are easier than we did maybe when we were younger. Um, and across the, across the aisle is a perfect example. They, they, they're, they grab, they really reach out to groups other than themselves to lead. Right. And that's phenomenal because if you're just looking inward in your own community, um, it's a narrow leadership. And, and we don't need that from this generation. We didn't need it from our generation. We need a leadership that knows that across all segments of our country. And I see that in the millennials. Right. So I'm very pleased with them. Uh, not every moment, but right. very pleased with them. So. Right. I, I think yeah, I agree with, with Thomas, but I think part of the, the addressing the issue is that we have we who are not millennials have to also make some adjustments. Right. Um, right. Because we don't always have all the right answers. Neither, neither, neither do they. And somewhere in the middle is kind of where the sweet spot is. Um, and if we really want to reach them, we're going to have to find a way to move off of our hard positions and sometimes meet them where they are uh, because they look to us for leadership. Yeah. Um, and if we take a hard position and show no flexibility, I'm not sure that's the leadership we want them to see. But the interesting thing is, though, we are seeing cases where CEOs are, are, or C-suite executives are changing their mindset a little bit, and they are incorporating a lot more of what the millennials uh, bring to the table. And I think they understand that the change is upon us, mm-hmm. and we need to make the change now so we can almost have a seamless transition moving forward for the next 50 years. Right. I mean, I think we're beginning to see what they legitimately bring to the table. Uh, I think in the beginning we maybe looked at the package. Um, We we didn't like the fact that the hair was long or they didn't wear a tie. Uh, We never got to a point and said, well, what's inside their heads? 
And I think we're spending more time now trying to understand better what they bring to the table. And we realize they're bringing a whole lot more uh, than we thought they did. It's a different little bit of society, but in the end, it's the ideas that really drive the growth that we're going to see from a lot of these companies. And it's imperative that they generate these ideas quickly. You know, for, for decades, companies change their strategy every three to five years. Right. That is no longer true or it's not true too often. You have to watch it all the time. But the benefit is the CEOs are staying in touch with the millennials because they have to keep their finger on the pulse now. The rate of change is far too quick for them to sit around every three to five years and say, take an assessment. Um, So those things are very positive changes. Millennials driving it to some degree, but technology as well. What about the issue of also uh, of women in leadership as well? Because I'm sure that's something that you are talking a lot about here at this uh, conference in terms of the roles of women in a lot of companies and how they can take these next steps as well. Yeah, very powerful for us, uh, for, for National Black MBA too. Uh, uh, sea changes happened in the last five years in my organization. 66% of all presidential lead chapters are women now. And whenever we do woman-specific professional development, we pack the house wherever we are in the country. And we know corporate America, again, in, in, in discussions with them, is, is quickly grasping for our female leaders. Uh, so it's a it's a strong change, strong change happening quickly. I think we're very positive impact. Jesse, same host for us. We're about seventy percent uh, of our chapter leaders are female. Um, the thing I see though that's that's happening in this space is the the academic community, and we, we talk about leadership and in individuals in the corporate world, but in between those two is an academic community. Yeah. And one of the things that both of our organizations are doing is getting more in touch with the academic community to become part of the solution to help the, the millennial generation get themselves prepared right. uh, for the corporate world. Because there are some things that we can teach them uh, that are non-negotiable. Right. Um, and so you get your mind around that, and then you don't spend a lot of energy trying to, to, to change those things, and right. it just makes it a whole lot easier transition when they come out of college. Because you, do you find that there are situations, and it's not – you know, across the board, but there are times when you're talking about academia where they are so kind of rooted in what they have done for the last 50 or 60 years that the adjustment is a little bit of a time to actually actually occur. And once you make it, you're kind of heading down that path, but it's still the ability of, of making that adjustment. Right. It is. I mean, it's like any institution, you know, you invest in, in doing things a certain way over a period of time. And, you know, you just don't uh, get the elephant to make that turn very, very easily, yeah. uh, which is where we come in. We can facilitate some of that change. And in some cases, we deliver the message directly to the students as we go into the classroom to kind of share with them some of our corporate experiences. But you're right. It's going to take time for the institutions that have been around for a while to make adjustments, but adjustments they will make yeah. uh, in order to remain relevant. Thomas? Yeah, we certainly hear uh, they're all expressing the desire to the change. They all know they need to change, but I think you're right. It's ability. I, I know we all think about the giant schools, the popular schools, the athletic schools, who have tons of resources to make that change, make it fairly quickly. But not the, the bulk of the schools in the country are not like that. Right. right. And, again, that's where we come in because our partnerships are deep because we offer things to many, most of the schools that they can't offer completely in-house. How much uh, uh, do you see the understanding of being able to maybe teaching leadership, but also kind of, not necessarily on, on a 100 you know, percent basis across the board with companies? Because I, I think it's a component that some of them understand that not everybody has the full leadership skill base right out of the gate when they're coming out of college. They do need to add something when they're in the workplace to be able to enhance that. Do you think companies understand that? I, I think they do. Um, I mean, I think if you if you look at most companies, they spend a lot of time trying to address this, this, this whole issue of leadership. Uh, and and how, do you, how do you identify leaders? How do you identify individuals with the traits to become effective leaders. Yeah. Um, and you know, there have been volumes of books written around this topic. Uh, and there are those who will, who will say to you that leaders see the same thing that everyone else sees. They just have the courage to take action. Um, and, and so I think you're, you're beginning to see a lot of formal training within corporations around this whole notion of leadership. And again, the academic community plays a big role in that because a lot of them are now bringing corporate executives into the classroom 
to actually talk about leadership and, and what that means far beyond whether or not you got a 3.8 or a 4.2 GPA. Right. Tom? Yeah, I mean, listen, I think it is coming in-house a bit more uh, also to make sure they get the leadership that suits their culture because that's, that's another nuance that maybe we as a great leader in one company is not a great leader in another. Truth is, I have trouble sitting through yet another leadership breakout session. <laughs> I've only been to 300 and something. Uh, I, I love them all and all those books out there. I stopped reading them quite a while ago. I treasure them. Uh, but it's needed. That's why it's there. And we still get crowds coming, uh, kids hungry to figure it all out because um, of the demand. They're still not prepared. We'll get our survey results in a week or two, and um, we'll see some, you know, aside from they didn't know how to approach the booth, but you know, they didn't seem like a leader. They didn't know how they were going to lead. I didn't see them leading in my organization. Is it a confidence thing, do you think? I mean, I'm sure that's a factor in it, but is that the main factor where they're just, as you said, somebody coming up to the booth, maybe they don't have the confidence that, that probably they need to have at this point? There may be some of that. I mean, I think there's a lot of elements to go in and, and maybe sometimes cultural. Um, I think we're, you know, we're overcoming that. Listen, this is a great place to come, but it can be daunting. Sure. Uh, yeah. Which is why it, plays, it pays to have a plan. Um, and you get tired and you're losing your voice like I am, and, and maybe the confidence kicks in, right? Or you've kind of had one or two um, interview sessions, didn't go quite the way you, way you want. So I think there's a lot of ingredients. Confidence is hard to keep up now, but uh, it is important to at least exhibit at that conference. Yeah, I think also some of the attendees are first generation, um, and so they didn't have the dinner table conversations about what to expect. Um, so they're kind of learning on the fly in, in, in some cases, whereas if, if, if you had a father or an uncle or a neighbor or whomever who kind of took you under their wings before you got to that point to share some learnings with you, it's much easier for you to make the transition. So so some of it is first generation, but um, but I think some of it is confidence. But confidence that gets better at the more they actually stay in the game and interview. But seemingly the one advantage that, that this generation has over people of our generation is the technology and, and the understanding of the technology and how important that is in the business setting these days. I mean, the kids are, I mean, I think of my kids, you know, and the technological savvy they have at 10 and eight years of age. I mean, kids now technologically are more prepared than ever before, which is a key component moving into the workforce. No, I, I agree. I, I watched my – Jesse talked about our children probably doing quite well. I watched mm-hmm. my eldest son go through a, a high school career fair. Uh, I didn't know who the child was. He, he approached it so well. Yeah. Uh, and I was, I was, uh, it was a proud dad moment. But uh, it's also daunting for them because at, where they've come to me is because they've read two or three things or watched a video that are – and they don't know how to make sense of it, right? It's the old search thing. What can I search? What is accurate? What pertains to me? Mm-hmm. So they still need help in, in, in working with all the data that's available. So there's so much data. So that's the challenge, but I'd still rather have all the data. Yeah, I, I, technology is great, and it will continue to drive our global economy, but people still matter. Uh, and until you have a mentor in your life uh, to kind of teach you some things, it doesn't matter how much technology you have. You still right. are going to be behind your peers. Which is great that you say that because seemingly there's a concern out there that we're going to see more and more jobs become robotic or you know, not needing the, you know, the actual human hand. Mm-hmm. So that's a good thing that, that you believe that we're not going to lose that quotient, even though there will be an enhancement to you know, using robots in, in the workplace. Right. We're still going to have the human beings as a key component. I don't, I don't see that we'll ever get beyond the fact that people matter. Uh, when that happens, then there won't be any human beings left to have the conversation that we're right. having. Right. Um, but, uh, and I think we need to continue to talk to our, our young folk about that fact because sometimes, especially first-generation students, think that technology is it. And so they get intimidated if they're not as savvy as others. But not every job in Silicon Valley, for example, is a technology job. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and there are going to be plenty of jobs for some period of time for folk who are not engineers or technically yeah. savvy. If we think back, the first conversation you ever, you and I ever had about partnership right. was face-to-face. And despite all the technology, yeah. we still can't. I mean, I'd love to live with my staff a bit more, work around travel if I could, but I, I don't look at it as much because it has to be face-to-face. It's still relationship-based. And I in mean, fact, I was, you, we wouldn't be here today 
if we relied on technology to have put this collaboration together. That's right. What do you hope the people that come to this conference leave with? A well, job, first of all. Well, yes, exactly. Yes. Right. Okay. Well put. Beyond the job, what, do you, what else do you hope, Tom? Yeah, I, I think uh, beyond some of the things we deliver, like jobs and networks that you, that you get here easily, I, um, I hope, particularly right now, there's a sense of inspiration and hope of watching the groups come together that we can have an impactful, positive change on what we see going on in the rest of the country. Yeah. And, and that's something we, ha- I, I, we haven't aspired for in other conferences on our own, but this is a special year at a special time and a special moment in our history. And, and that's something different, I think. Jesse? I, I would echo that. I mean, we can't underestimate the fact that we're sitting here having this conversation yeah. uh, as, as one conference, not two conferences. And I think this will allow us to send a message to a much, to a much broader population in this country, including those who think they're smarter than we are, um, that uh, the Latino community and the, and, the, and the black community can come together on some meaningful things. And we don't take lightly the fact that this is much bigger than just this conference. Right. Uh, it's a societal impact that we think we can have, and we just have to figure out how to make sure more people hear that story. Thank you both for coming here. Thank Appreciate you. Thank it. You. Thank you. Jesse Tice and uh, Thomas Savino joining us here on Knowledge at Wharton. Take a break. Back with more of the show in just a minute. Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. Welcome back to the Philadelphia Convention Center. We are here for the National Black MBA Association Conference. Uh, and Prospanica as well. Uh, and as we move along, we're going to take a look at leadership, especially within the banking sector. It's an industry that has certainly had its ups and downs in the last decade. There's been obviously recently concern about banking regulation by some people, whether it's to ease it or keep it tightened, uh, as the we have seen in the past few years. But it's also an industry in flux as innovation and technology are impacting it daily. Melanie Walker is a senior vice president for SunTrust. She was part of the uh, conference here today, and a pleasure to have her for a few minutes. Nice meeting you. Thank nice you for to coming meet you in. Also, thank you for having me. Just in general, though, uh, having a conference like this, what is what does this mean for you, and what do you think it means for the banking industry? Not only to have all of these conferences going on, but the but the seminars and the job fairs as well. The conference has been amazing. It's it's a great opportunity to network and link in with um, folks that you wouldn't have an opportunity to otherwise see. You have social media where you get to connect with people, but the in-person connection that you get from a conference like this is just unparalleled. The, um, the sessions, um, having experts that you can actually hear and then go and speak with and network with afterwards, it's, it's priceless. The, the conference has been an amazing experience. What do you think the state of the banking industry is right now, especially when you think about the regional banks? Mm-hmm. What do you think? Where where are they right now? So right now with the regional banks, I think that, um, you know, it's like you said, it's been an up and down ride for the last 10 years. I think the regional banks are really taking their time to focus on the middle market. The middle market is where um, we have more leverage. You you know, we just can't compete on the level of a of a Bank of America, you know, someone who has that far reach. But we can service those small town communities. We can service the folks that are, you know, in our neighborhoods. And so that's kind of where we where we are right now. Um, I think we're um, we're doing better. Um, things are getting better. I think the trust has yeah. been built back up. That's yeah. that's been really the focus for um, the you know last several years. Is just making sure that people understand we know where things went. We've we've made precautions to not go down that road again. Sure. And I think the trust is really being built back at this point. N- not to speak specifically about the particular case, but unfortunately, when you have something like a Wells Fargo pop up. That hurts all of the banks within the industry. It does. I think you just have to step up and address it head on when you have a situation like that. You have to make sure you let your customers know. We are looking to see, could something like that happen here? You're going behind the scenes and looking at your processes and and, and what you're um, doing behind the scenes and making sure that if there's any gaps, if there's any opportunity for something like that to happen in your company, that you're tightening it up, but you're making sure that you um, provide folks with that insight that we heard we heard you we know that you're worried about this and we're making sure that it won't happen so, here so then i would imagine with the, with a regional bank then and when you're trying to rebuild that trust the, the efforts that you put out forth in the community are 
unbelievably important. You're, you're trying to make that connection Absolutely. with every consumer that you can. Absolutely. And, and that's the strength of a regional bank. Um, we're, mo- we're more personal. We want to provide you with that um, handshake. We want you to feel like you can walk in the door and you have that personal banker. Um, it's not this, just this huge faceless um, corporation. We want to make you feel like you have that personal relationship. And I think that's where our strength lies. One of the things that you were here talking about were, were opportunities for women, especially at the executive level. Mm-hmm. Where do you think that stands right now? I think that uh, women, we have a huge opportunity. We were really focusing on um, Hillary's historic run in the White House and, and, you know, how did that hurt women or did that that help us? I think that it definitely helped us. I think that um, you're going to have folks that have bias and, and you have to address those biases head on also. When people can see that um, women can do anything anything. You have to let them know. You have to see a woman, you know, in action, see us um, running the show. And and that's what we're doing. Um, I think that in in the past, you've had um, a lot more barriers. But I think now people are really um, stepping up and and seeing us and not having those same problems. You're always going to have some obstacles that you you have to address. Mm -hmm. But I think that the ceiling's been broken. Um, we had some very dynamic um, CEOs, chief marketing officers, yeah. you know, people in HR. We had some great people on our panels, and they gave some really, really good advice. So I think the ceilings is, is, is going to go away. And, and as you see more and more women that, are, that enter the C-suite or become the CEOs of companies, mm-hmm. that kind of burns away at that a little bit even further. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. When you can actually visualize. Some, some folks just can't visualize it. When you can actually see it happening, then it's like, oh, okay, it's, it's not as big of a deal as I thought it was. So we've made major progress. But, but even though you, we've seen it in a variety of sectors, what is it in the banking sector? What's the state of that in the banking sector right now? Because that has been perceived for a long time as a male-dominated mm-hmm. sector. Mm-hmm. Is that changing? Mm-hmm. I think slowly but surely it is changing. Um, I know in our bank in particular, we have some very dynamic um, female leaders. Um, in some other institutions, I've seen very dynamic female leaders. I think you know it, it hasn't been as progressive as some other industries, but we're moving along. It, it, going back to the election for a second, you mentioned about Hillary Clinton and her run and her mm-hmm. attempt to become president of the United States. Uh, it, it seemingly, to me, is is watching this that whether it be in the next 10 years or 15 or 20 years we probably will see a female president it may just have to be the right person to be that person it could be a nikki haley or somebody like that i mean we'll wait and see but but i get that sense that that possibility is obviously quite a bit better than it was say 20 years ago absolutely i think you know, even though she fell short and some would um, say that she actually won the election and, you know, we'll we'll move along from there. But even though she fell short, you were able to see her presence. You were able to see her building up through running for um, president in her roles that she had before that. I think that um, as, as we move forward, in the next couple years, I'm hoping to see another dynamic person step up. I'm right. hoping to see another presence, and I'm hoping that people will be that much more open to making it happen. But within, you know, the next couple years, it, I absolutely expect to see a female president. Is the expectation that within the banking sector right now that uh, what what that industry went through over a period of you know five to ten years? They've been able to build away from that. And now we're seeing you know, the various levels of, of digital come into the banking sector and the innovation that's coming into the banking sector. And that is kind of pushing the industry forward. Those are kind of the two components that seemingly will carry banking you know, well into the next, uh, next century. Mm-hmm. Robotics is the, is the hot topic. I yeah. think behind the scenes, a lot of um, um, Companies are really putting a lot of focus, attention, and investment into robotics. Um, they're looking at their processes and saying, where can we innovate? Where can we automate? Um, that's definitely the hot topic in the industry. And um, if you're not looking at that, you definitely need to, to jump on it. Um, you're a little bit behind the eight ball on that. We definitely have a huge um, focus and project um, internally at my bank looking at robotics and, um, and how we can innovate and how we can better serve our customers because that is our focus. Some Sometimes you can lose the focus of what yeah. we're here for. Yeah. It's all about the customer. So whatever we can do to make our bottom line stronger is what we're focused on. But what on. do you think that's going to do for the regional banks or banks in general when you're talking about 
the community touch. I mean, people uh, of my generation, a little bit older, are used to we're used to going to the bank, talking to the teller, right. talking to the loan officer, whatever it might be. Right. That's that's pulled away from a degree, mm-hmm. and, and it makes me wonder if whether or not we are going to lose that altogether at some point down the road. I, I think that's a really good question. It's um, a fair concern, also because that is our focus in the community. So I think you have to have a nice balance. You can have that automation, but you also have to make sure that you provide that personal, that human touch, because that's where in the region, the regional banks and in the small towns, people want to have that face-to-face conversation. So in in our communities, we have kind of a hybrid where if you don't want to talk to a teller, you can go up to an automated teller and you can can do your transaction that way. And a lot of the younger folks would, you know, they prefer to do it that way, but you can still always walk in and have someone to speak with. And so I think if, if we move away from having that personal presence, that human presence, then then we could definitely do ourselves a disservice. And Melanie Walker is a senior vice president at SunTrust Bank. The interesting thing, though, is, is that, I mean, you, me, everybody, we walk around with these smartphones in our hands. And, and just the concept of banking in general mm-hmm. has done a complete 180 since we've had this technology kind of in our hands. Right. And I would imagine that probably everybody at your bank and pretty much everybody in the banking sector in general realizes that the way to connect to the consumer, for the most part, is going to be through this device mm-hmm. in the years to come. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if, if, if your um, app doesn't allow you to take a picture of a check and deposit it that way or move money, people will move on. They they do not have time. Everyone's all about doing things quickly and on the fly. I have 15 different things going on. So, yes, your your, um, smartphone right at at your hand, at your fingertips, is your um, bank. It is your uh, brick and mortar now. A lot of those are going away. But like I said, you still have to have that balance. And if you're going to service your customer, you still have to listen and so they need that, that other opportunity to walk in and, and have that face-to-face transaction because that phone can't answer every question or give you every bit of advice. So, What about the issues surrounding security and, and, and personal data? Because that's something that I know the banking sector has to be worried about. Healthcare is worried about. I, I mean, pretty much everybody across the board Absolutely. is worried about that. that. If it's not factor number one, it's 1A. Probably for the banking mm-hmm. sector. Absolutely. Um, security is, is definitely a top priority for us and um, your personal information, top priority. Um, we have many controls. I mean, we're highly regulated yeah. um, to make sure that we, you know, protect your privacy at all costs. So it is definitely at the top of our list as it relates to, you know, you put your trust in us and, and that's with your money, your investments, but also with your, your personal information. And so we take that very seriously. Where do you think bank? will be. I mean, can you start to, I'm sure this conversation has happened in your office, uh, of what banking could potentially be in the next 20, 30 years. I mean, there's going to be core elements that will be the same because you have to have the connection with the consumer. You have to be providing the services, Mm -hmm. but still there's going to be that next level of growth Mm-hmm. for banking, just like there is now in healthcare and, and a variety of different sectors. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting. Um, you hear a lot of people talk about the different avenues that, that banking could take. I mean, you know, lending, that's our core. That's yeah. always going to be there. Um, um, investments, you know, servicing your customer. I think that as um, the industry grows, as technology grows, as innovation grows, so will banking. We will follow and make sure that we're servicing you in whatever way the industry is going. And so who knows in in, in 10, 20 years what kind of innovation will come down the pipeline. Whatever that is, we'll definitely be there hand in hand, walking with you to make sure that we're servicing you in in the best way possible. So I I can't say where banking is going to be in 10 and 20 years. We're going to make sure that we're going wherever the trends are going um, with with everything else that's going on out there. So thanks for Thanks for a few minutes. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Melanie Walker, uh, Senior Vice President at uh, SunTrust Bank. Well, much is made of how government works and spends its money. Recently, there was concern over HHS Director Tom Price taking private planes for duties. There's also been much said about government contracts and the process of winning them, but also the implementation of a contract to make sure that workers are treated fairly. One of the sessions here at the National Black MBA Association Conference dealt with the issue of government contracts. One of the gentlemen involved in that, Cassius Butts, who's a former Obama administration appointee for the Small Business Administration. He's currently the chairman of consulting firm CFB Advisors out of Atlanta, and he joins us now. 
Nice meeting you. Thank you for coming in. Good morning. Glad to be here. So how has the idea of a government contract changed? You know, because I think there's a perception that big business has got an unbelievable advantage on small business in getting a, getting a contract. Sure, sure. One thing that is consistent is that government contracting has been around since the existence of this country yeah. uh, have been in place. And what that means is that there are opportunities to make sure that lights are on, folks have clothes on, on, on their back, uh, they have cars to drive, and they have the ability to basically function. So our government needs to be in place to function at all times. Uh, with that being said, we have specific agencies that are in place to make certain that you have those opportunities. And when, when there is a, not so much of an eye-to-eye going on under uh, uh, the Dome and, and, and Congress, uh, government still has to function. And so we've had to find a place, uh, a way to make certain that that happens. That's why there's a, there's a continuing uh, budgets that are put in place. All that being said is that no matter what you see on the headlines, the government still has to function. The lights have to be on. Yeah. Trash has to be picked up. Uh, and so I'm definitely proud to say that we've been in a place in this country now, as you know, over two years to make sure that the lights are on. Uh, trash is still being picked up. People still have the opportunity to go to college no matter who's in the Oval Office. Yeah. Um, and so we have to find ways of tapping into those resources. Our panel talks specifically about learning more about your local, state, and federal government mm-hmm. so you can play an active role in that and becoming more aware about how to get involved in making certain that you know what to do no matter what goes on in Pennsylvania Avenue. Especially for small business as well, correct? Absolutely. Small businesses are the lifeblood of this country. Over 98% of the economy runs off of small business. Uh, with, that, with that being said, when you think of a, a store of a Walmart or a Target or uh, a, a Macy's, if you will, all those stores have smaller suppliers that actually sell to them uh, and making certain that their products are on the stands or in a position to, uh, to be bought by, by a consumer. Uh, and when you're working with the federal government, it's the largest purchaser of goods and services in the world. And so we have opportunities to buy those products to help to support those private sector entities so we can work hand in hand. Is the expectation, though, where small business is concerned by some owners of a small business that they just can't compete in that realm? And and maybe that's a falsehood. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's a falsehood. Um, You can compete. It's almost like, what do you want to be? Do you want to be small? Do you want to be mid-sized? Do you want to be large? Right. Uh, You figure uh, Under Armour started out as a small business, SBA. Uh, You figure uh, Sarah Blakely uh, in Spanx. She started off by having advisement through SBA. Uh, FedEx. Microsoft, I can go on. Yeah. So the point is, is what is your end game? What do you want to do in the next five to ten years? And so knowing that you have an end game in mind, uh, we typically have folks within the federal government. I'm proud to say I've served as a presidential management fellow under the Bush administration for the U.S. Department yeah. of Housing and Urban Development. At that time, we made certain that folks were in homes for the first time. Could have did a little bit of a better job to make certain they were in the right type of product. But, but you learn from that. Mm-hmm. So you take that model and implement the same thing at the SBA, which I did. Uh, and making certain that people were aware of their options. I want to make one point, Dan. The United States federal government is not a mandate. It's an option. We're going to be here no matter what. But having the option to say, hey, I like to use this product to scale up my business, or I like to stay small, it's your option. Right. So that's, that's the best part about being in America. We are uh, joined by Cassie Sputz, uh, as we mentioned, a former uh, member of the Small Business Administration, currently the chairman of consulting firm CFB Advisors. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. Do you see more and more small businesses considering the idea of getting a government contract or at least registering for the possibility of, of getting one? Absolutely. I see that more and more small businesses, that, as they are aware of their option, are taking advantage of those opportunities. So uh, this past administration, I'm proud to say that we backed over $30 billion in loans in small business within my region, which was a record, Dan. Mm-hmm. has never been done before. And how did that happen? We made certain that I want to make certain that there are no marketing dollars to talk about what's taking place in the federal doubt, right. federal government. So it was upon us as appointed officials to go to the head of the banks, to go to the, uh, the Chamber of Commerces and talk about the products that SBA had to offer. So we did that. And once more and more people learned about that, Dan, they took yeah. advantage of those opportunities and said, hey, you've got an 8 uh, program, an eight-year training, a nine-year training program where I can help to be matched with a prime uh, contracting company. At no cost, yeah. you know, and people was like, "Hey, sign me up!" So we made certain that there were opportunities to have again an option, not a mandate. Right. Uh, you say that this is where your tax earned dollars are being spent. So if you, as a consumer, anyone who pays ha- pays taxes, say, "Hey, where are my dollars going?" It's going toward opportunities like that. So we want more and more people to know about it. 
uh, take advantage of going to the website, sba.gov, where you can go to any other agency that is in your interest and take advantage of those opportunities. One of the things I, I learned, especially most recently, unfortunately, with uh, the hurricanes hitting the Texas coastline and, and Florida as well, is the importance of SBA uh, in the recovery efforts yes. of those areas as well. Take us inside the mindset of what the SBA would be doing now with people in Texas and people in Florida trying to help them out in the recovery. Absolutely. Dan, I'll tell you, my first week on a job, uh, the, the unfortunate hurricanes and tornadoes hit in, uh, in Mississippi and Alabama. Uh, at that time, most people didn't know, to your point, that whenever there's a natural disaster that's uh, um, um, ordained by the presidents of the United States, say, hey, this area is declared a natural disaster, the federal government jumps in immediately. The first agency that goes in there is FEMA. The yeah. first agency that goes in there with FEMA is SBA. And so FEMA helps to get the community get back on its feet, SBA is there to help the, the business community get back on its feet. And how do you do that? Uh, we offer low-interest loans, making certain that people have access to make certain that they can meet payroll, uh, making sure that they can still bring in those supplies to come in to put the business back on its feet. And, we, and SBA also offers opportunity to have, uh, if, you, or if you're renting an apartment, you lost all your items, where you have up to $40,000 to file a claim to get those items back. Yeah. And so you may not recover the items, at least the financial assistance is, is there. Uh, and now, to your point, in Texas and Florida, uh, they are still there. They're camped out, and they will be there until uh, those businesses are back on its feet. The expectation, though, that, I mean, realistically, how long will they be there? Yeah, great question. So uh, you, whenever uh, there is this disaster that's proclaimed in whatever area that comes about, yeah. uh, they're there until it's really back on its feet. Yeah. And, I le- and so we may have staff at that time. We at that time, like I'm still there. But there may be staff that's going to say, hey, I'm going to be here for six months or I'll be here for a year. Yeah. And they'll rotate out to make certain that that community is built back up. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, just last year, we still have uh, persons who were sent to other areas in the country uh, taking on disaster recovery efforts since last year. And so it's an ongoing process. And again, uh, this team is dedicated specifically toward disaster. And so again, when you think about eternal lights, you expect them to be on. When you expect you go outside and see a trash show there, you expect it to be picked up. That's mm-hmm. what the federal government is here for. Yeah, be- yeah. because as you mentioned, uh, with the amount of small business that, that carries in this economy that we have right now, to have a significant number of small businesses down at any one, any one period of time, that has a negative impact on, on GDP growth. Absolutely. It's catastrophic. You figure if a business cannot be available to, to uh, sell its goods and services to the community, that means that they cannot uh, make payroll, which means folks cannot put their kids in college, people cannot buy gas. So you're right. It has a domino effect. And so we have to make certain that the small business community is supported at all times. Does the does the SBA get involved when it's a situation as well, like in Puerto Rico or the U.S. Virgin Islands as absolutely, well? Absolutely, absolutely. We yeah. have a team that is get it, dedicated. Uh, Region 1 specifically uh, goes has been there before the hurricane hit. Yeah. This is something that the headlines is not making a whole lot of uh, talk about, but they were there before uh, the hurricane hit, and they'll be there during and afterwards to help the rebuilding process. One of the other things I, I, I learned in the last year about SBA is the education that the organization tries to provide to consumers, to potential business people, for them to be able to have programs so that they can better understand what they need to do if they have an idea of a business right. to get it off the ground. Absolutely. So there, there are some great opportunities, Dan. If you go to sba.gov, you'll see that there are month and click on whatever state you are. Click on that, that state, the name of the district director will come up, their contact information, such as their phone number and their email address. Uh, and you can actually set an appointment at that time to come in to talk to the counselors about being a part of starting and growing your business. I'd like to also add that there's another option that we have there is our small business development centers, which are yeah. typ- they're typically located on college campuses. And, um, and one yeah. at Wharton. That and one at Wharton, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Great resource. Uh, the, the federal government sends funds to those small business development centers via SBA, uh, and also our score counselors, retired executives, uh, some of them who are not retired, who are there to help folks who want to learn how to start and grow their business at no cost. Kind of a mentoring process. Mentoring process. So you, yeah. you've got a counselor for life. And so th- these are wonderful opportunities, which is why I'm so glad we're talking about it today, so more and more people can take advantage of them. 
And the resources that are available, obviously, in this day, uh, day of digital, I mean, they're, they're more and more available at the fingertips of people so that they can you know, connect quicker than, say, they would have 20 or 30 years ago. Absolutely. I, I like to always say, again, the, S, the federal government is open 365, 24 hours a day. So you, you figure that you can always go into the website uh, and you can always set an appointment. Uh, and, the, and the best part about it, it doesn't cost – well, I'll, I'll say this. You paid your taxes. So it's an investment in yourself. Take advantage of this investment. Right. If you think about starting or growing a business, it's there for you. You've already paid the cost. Take advantage of it. You know, and you'll see in the end that if you want to be a part of that 98% that runs this economy, you realize you can do that just as a click of a finger by opening up your browser. I think a lot of people, as you mentioned earlier, something like Under Armour or something like Spanx, they don't, they don't consider those to be – at one point, small businesses. The assumption is that they came in as you know six billion dollar a year companies, yeah. and it's it's just not necessarily the case. No, no, it's not. I've seen companies, Dan, start from making ten thousand dollars a year to now multi million dollar uh, a year revenues. And so you're you're exactly right. It's it's what you want. Some people want to grow to a billion dollar industry, and that's fine. Some people want to stay small, and that's okay too. Yeah. The great part about it is an option. It's not a mandate. The expectation, though, of a, of a small business going into and the process of moving up, you know, they, they want to be able to have growth. And the nice thing is, is that the resources there, it doesn't matter if, as you said, you're that $10,000 a year business yeah. or $500,000 a year business. The resources will still be there. Resources will still be there. And if you don't take advantage of them, they'll go back into a, another program that's, that's used for another service to make sure that your lights are on or, or that you have uh, services for your home. But, but again, you know, take advantage of it. If you have the option and the option, option means that you have someone there to help you to start your business with your business plan, right. uh, access to capital. If you're looking for what type of capital means to get started, we have folks there to help you. Um, and even if you're looking just to have training or if you want to be a mentor yeah. to help someone, this is what it's so important to, to, to get this information out so more and more people are taking advantage your, of it. Your advisory firm is doing what? Playing off of that to a degree? Certainly. So CFB Advisors, again, we're a boutique uh, consulting firm located in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, but we're there to help folks with access to capital, uh, certification opportunities. If you are considered a minority, a woman, or a person who was considered a minority, we help to get you certified through entities such as National Minority Supplier Development Council or uh, any other uh, organizations such as the Greater Women Business Council. Yeah. Uh, we want to make certain that people realize that there are entities in place that can help you to scale up. And so what we do at CAB Advisors, we make sure that you're there to know what these options are and make certain that they're available for you at any time. And, and you were telling me something that, that you're involved with at Georgia State University as well. Absolutely. I'm an executive residence at the Georgia State University JMAC College of Business. Um, we're there to help folks to make certain that they realize that there are pipeline opportunities from philanthropic opportunities uh, to make sure that students have access to uh, jobs and internships, and to make certain that more and more people know about what's taking place. We were just voted the fourth most innovative uh, institution in the country, right. and so we're very proud of it, and we're doing a lot of great things. In fact, our dean, uh, Richard Phillips, is a graduate right here in, in Pennsylvania, University of Pennsylvania as well, so we're proud and, and uh, glad to be in this space. Nice meeting you, Cassius. It's Thanks a very pleasure much. meeting you, Dan. Thank you very much. Uh, Cassius Butts uh, joining us here on the show. We will take a break, come back with more of Knowledge of Warden here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Warden School. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 